Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person or at one of our 175 locations, online or over our toll-free helpline, you're getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. Today's episode is part of our special series looking at leukemias, and we'll be focusing on chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL for short. Over the past few years, a number of exciting scientific advances have been made in treating CLL. So today, we're going to take a close look at the new treatments and testing being used so that you have the most up-to-date information for making informed decisions. With us today to bring us up to speed is Dr. Danielle Brander. Let me tell you about her. Dr. Brander is a cellular therapy and hematologic malignancies specialist. Her main focus is on chronic lymphocytic leukemia and other slow-growing or indolent lymphomas. She has been practicing at Duke University since 2013. Currently, she is an assistant professor in the Division of Hematologic Malignancies and Cellular Therapy. She is also the director of the CLL and Lymphoma Clinical Research Program. Dr. Brander is a recipient of the William Kane Hematology Oncology Junior Faculty Teaching Award and is an Hemonc Today Next Gen Innovator, a highly select group of early career hematologists and oncologists who have advanced their field through innovative approaches in the clinical and research settings. Dr. Brander is focused on individualized patient care and is passionate about learning in an ever-changing field. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brander. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's truly an honor and pleasure to be here. Outstanding. We have a lot to cover today, uh, Dr. Brander. I'm, I'm, I'm planning to start our conversation by learning a little bit about CLL, but before we do that, I want to ask you in broader terms what it's been like to be a practicing oncologist and hematologist during such an exciting period of change. We're going to take a closer look at the advancements later in the show. But when you look at the current landscape of care for people diagnosed with CLL, what are you most excited about? Wow, that's an excellent question. I think for our patients, if I just start very broadly in the past couple years is having non-chemotherapy options that are both more effective and potentially with less side effects. And that's what we really, I think, strive to do. And um, one of my colleagues, I think, said it best, which is we really should be excited that we can offer patients more effective and less toxic therapies, but uh, we really are all truly passionate about um, never losing sight that we can always do better. So I think what is really exciting the past couple of years is having new therapies, but not just stopping there and making sure we continue to push for what's best for our patients. Well, that's a great uh, sort of overarching start to our yeah. conversation. Yeah, that's perfect. So thank you for that. Um, so let's dive in. Uh, 
can you tell us in, in really simple terms, I mean, I'm talking about like sixth grade science class, okay? Um, explain <laughs> to our listeners, what is, uh, what is leukemia? I think many of us, many of our listeners have heard of leukemia, but they don't necessarily understand what it is, um, how it's different from what we call solid tumors like breast cancer or lung cancer. So let's start there. Sure. So leukemia is a very general, broad term that really makes us think of a cancer of the blood cells or the blood tissues. So sometimes that comes from the bone marrow, the factory for making our blood cells. Sometimes it comes from lymph nodes or what people call glands that, you know, are are swollen sometimes when you have an infection, but there's all blood um, cells in there and blood tissues, and those can become a cancer. So many, many years ago when it was recognized they were a cancer in the blood or of the blood uh, cell tissues, it was called a leukemia. But as time has gone on over the past decades, it's now recognized that's a very broad term. And to be able to um, counsel patients and their families on options, we have to um, use the diagnostics or use information we have to give very specifics on what type of leukemia it is, because that makes a big difference in how it, um, the recommendations are made and how treatments are tailored. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So before we get into specifically talking about CLL, which is a chronic sure. type of leukemia, tell us the difference between a chronic leukemia and an acute leukemia. Sure. So an acute leukemia patients, most commonly, it's not just found on a regular visit. Patients, unfortunately, usually feel sick very fast and might feel symptoms that we'll talk about due to other low blood counts. Um, or they might get an infection because they don't have a lot of active cancer cells around. So acute leukemias can make patients feel sick very fast, and once it's found, patients are often admitted to the hospital to finish the workup and to start on, on intensive treatments right away. Chronic leukemias, on the other hand, often patients don't necessarily have symptoms or it's picked up on regular blood work, And in some cases, because it's a slower-growing process, um, patients, even after diagnosis, don't necessarily need treatment right away. So even within those groups, there are many types of acute and chronic leukemias, and that's what the treatments are directed against. But um, acute, which means fast or sudden happening, means patients usually have symptoms fast, need treatment fast. Chronic is um, kind of on the other spectrum of that. Okay, so let's get to the heart of today's episode, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. What is that more specifically? Sure. So chronic lymphocytic leukemia, as you mentioned, CLL, is actually the most uh, common leukemia in Western countries. So about 20,000 patients in the um, United States, uh, for example, are diagnosed every year. And because patients can live a long time with CLL, um, it's estimated anywhere from 150, 180,000 people in the United States alone have CLL. Um, so in addition to being the, the most common kind, there still can be a wide range of um, different ways that patients uh, present, but the diagnosis is either made from a blood sample um, or from a lymph node or bone marrow biopsy where the doctor and the um, pathologist that look at look at the biopsies, help look for specific markers 
that are unique to CLL, and that's how the diagnosis is made. Got it. Got it. Um, our listeners may have heard of uh, another kind of leukemia called CML, chronic myeloid leukemia. How does CML differ from CLL? So that's an excellent uh, point. Because the letters are so similar, they are often confused. The The middle part of, of those three letters, though, the the lymphocytic versus myeloid, um, that refers to the kind of blood cell that the cancer um, came from. And so while they're both chronic and they're both leukemias, um, when the, the treating the doctor team and the pathologist look at it on a cell-by-cell level, they're very different. They come from very different cells and um, therefore the treatments are very different. So we don't use really any of the same treatments for CLL as we do for um, CML. So while the the letters are very similar and they are both mm-hmm. chronic, the the treatments because of the diagnosis are are very different. So tell us, Dr. Brander, how is CLL diagnosed? So so let's go back to some things you mentioned earlier. Will a patient sure. be um, experiencing some symptoms or side effects? Will they be feeling unwell? Does this come up on a regular kind of annual physical and blood work? You know, how is it usually diagnosed? A lot of patients don't necessarily have symptoms or have symptoms that they might not think fatigue could be due to other causes. Um, and part of that, I think, is that one of the things we didn't touch on yet, but um, the median age, uh, the the most common time CLL is diagnosed is around age 70 to 72. Um, so many patients have other health conditions or are having um, fatigue or other symptoms that might understandably just be attributed to other health problems they have uh, going on. Probably a very common way that CLL is diagnosed because it does usually um, have associated elevated white blood counts. So white blood cells are a type of blood cells. And when patients have their blood counts checked, either because they're on a a medication that needs blood counts checked or um, uh, they are there for their annual physical, their doctor might notice that their white blood count is elevated even if they're not sick and Um, If a type of white blood cell called lymphocytes are elevated, then for some patients, a specific test is sent on the blood. Um, In other cases, not as commonly, if patients notice their lymph glands are staying very swollen and not going away, um, then their doctor might order a biopsy of a lymph node, and that under the microscope, again, looking at the pattern, can lead to the diagnosis of DLL. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Brenda, we're getting up to our first commercial break okay. here, but let me just ask you, um, I know there are many factors that determine how CLL is treated. One of those factors is if it's a slower or faster growing CLL. What's the significance of that difference? Right. So as I just broad stroke, since we'll get into it a little later, but I think one of the most important thing you're picking out is that those CLL is one diagnosis for Um, patients can have very different courses. Some might not need treatment right away. Some might need treatment after a couple years. 
and um, some need treatment soon after they are diagnosed. So there are specific markers that the oncologist or the cancer doctor might recommend at the time of diagnosis just to try to give patients a better um, understanding of if they're more or less likely to need treatment right away versus down the road. And part of that is those markers also help look at how fast it's uh, growing, but it's really to try to help patients understand since um, patients with CLL can have very different expectations, of course, of what um, is more likely to happen over the next uh, couple months versus couple Great, years. and yes, we are going to get into that uh, more detailed yes. discussion with Dr. Danielle Brander, um, and we're going to talk about some of the treatment approaches, um, including sometimes no treatment at all which can be sometimes stressful for patients. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We're, we're, this is part of our special series called Looking at Leukemias, and we're focused today on chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL for short. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Danielle Brander. She's a cellular therapy and hematologic malignancy, malignancies specialist. She's at Duke University uh, and has been at Duke since 2013. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We have a lot of, of territory to cover on CLL with Dr. Brander. We're going to take a quick uh, break here. Don't go away. We will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, 
Kim Chibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo. Today's episode is brought to you in part by AbV. Our guest today is Dr. Danielle Brander. She's helping us take a closer look at chronic lymphocytic leukemia uh, as part of our special series looking at leukemias. Dr. Brander is Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematologic Malignancies and Cellular Therapy at Duke University School of Medicine, Duke's Cancer Institute, and Director of their CLL and Lymphoma Clinical Research Program. Um, Dr. Brander, I hope you won't mind a little bit of a, of a personal uh, question, but uh, we'd like to get, to get to know our guests a little bit, and I would love uh, to hear from you um, really what drew you to this particular area of specialty cell therapy, hematologic malignancies? Is this something you learned about in, 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 in medical school? Did you have, you know, any personal um, experience with, with uh, blood cancers? You know, what drew you to this field as you were um, picking some specialties? Yes, I think um, absolutely happy to talk about it. Some of it I think is easier to be in the position I am and look back and see how I navigated with time and ended up in what I truly feel very passionate about, which is helping patients with uh, blood cancers and trying to help understand what best uh, treatment or not treatment is best for them. If I had to look back and think uh, the key points that led me down this path, I think certainly even as back early as medical school, I was really just drawn to um, want to help in all the way patients are affected uh, by cancers. And one of the just by timing that was really starting to emerge at that time was for patients with blood cancers, all the different treatments that really depended on understanding our immune system. A lot of blood cancers we think come from cells of our normal immune system. And now treatments, interestingly, that have been promising come from looking at how do we harness our own immune system to fight the cancer or how does understanding what the immune system needs that we can maybe block and take away from the blood cancer cells and that can lead to treatment of the cancer cells. But ending up in helping patients with CLL and chronic lymphomas, I really think for me was working with my mentors at the time and they developed these very long relationships with their patients and saw from the start everything they had to, they and their family had to change with the diagnosis of whether they needed treatment or not once they had choices for treatment, what was best for them despite what clinical trials might say, how do you figure out what's what's best for them and um, having time to have those discussions and thinking about it versus jump on starting treatment right away I think was really, really important. Um, And lastly, I would say is not just thinking of the treatment itself when that decision comes, but another thing we're really passionate about is how do we um, help patients with really what is hopefully becoming chronic cancer care, meaning not just thinking about treatment of the cancer, but are patients really having good access to other cancer screenings or to choosing the best medication for their blood pressure? You know, we don't want to focus so much on the cancer that we lose um, track of all, you know, all of patients' health needs. Sure, sure. And you talked in the uh, last segment about patients being diagnosed a little bit older, and those patients are more likely 
to have some of those other health issues that you're uh, yeah. uh, that you're describing. I know that the uh, you know, technical term is sort of comorbidities, but things like diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, and other um, uh, other of those factors. Um, Dr. Brander, we talked a little bit about slow and fast growing CLL, um, and that's certainly something that we need to understand in order to determine. A treatment plan for a patient. What other factors influence uh, the treatment plan? What kinds of uh, tests, of exams, um, would a patient expect to undergo as we're really trying to hone in on the diagnosis, which will inform the treatment plan? Sure. So, in some cases, when patients' white blood cells might just be elevated, and the the blood test is done that can diagnose CLL. Patients might meet with their oncologist or their cancer team, and they help confirm the diagnosis might send some more blood work. Um, But now with the way uh, technology has improved for the diagnosis, that may be all that's needed in terms of testing is additional um, blood work and an exam. Um, if patients are having other symptoms or it looks like they might need treatment right away, then in some cases, their team might talk to them about CAT scans or PET scans. They're not always needed for CLL, but if patients are having symptoms and you can't feel something on exam, um, they may need that uh, done as well. If their other blood count, um, like if people are anemic or their platelets that help with clotting are really low and it Um, Their team is concerned that it seems too much to just be explained by the CLL, then in some cases, patients might need what's called a bone marrow biopsy. Those are usually done in the office using a needle to look at the factory where blood cells are made, which are inside um, the bones, so usually the back of the um, hip bone. But fortunately, with technology advances, um, we are trying to cut back initially on, on all the invasive testing that that might be needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, as we're on this topic of testing, Dr. Brander, is it during that time frame that um, patients would ideally go through testing to look specifically at biomarkers, um, abnormalities in chromosomes or gene mutations. So let's let's let me take the question back a little bit. Let's start by telling our listeners what are these kinds of tests that we're talking about and why are they important in the diagnosis of CLL? Sure. So for the diagnose, uh, diagnosis of CLL, those tests can be done on the blood, the lymph node, or the bone marrow. But as you were saying, to really have an understanding of what next steps to take, we have to understand um, patient and CLL-specific um, biomarkers. So there's a international um, working group for CLL called IWCLL, and that helps provide guidelines of what are the things we're looking for to decide if a patient even needs treatment right away. So about a third of Patients uh, never will require treatment for their CLL. About a third will progress with time, and a third will need it right away. Um, If patients at the time of um, diagnosis or shortly after are looking at um, that they are meeting indications that we would be recommending to do treatment, then the things that factor from a 
a biomarker standpoint, this are these are tests either on the blood or the bone marrow or the lymph node where we're trying to better understand what are the differences that have for some patients with CLL, their CLL is growing very slow versus growing very fast. And five or ten years ago, we used to do those biomarker genetic tests on the leukemia just to counsel patients of what to expect. Now with the change in treatments, we use those markers to say, is chemotherapy still an option? Should patients consider a different treatment such as what we call targeted treatments? Um, one of the things I want to make clear because it, I think, understandably gets confusing when we talk about the genetics is these are specifically looking at the blueprints, the chromosomes, the genetics of the leukemia cell. Those are different than the rest of the body. So these aren't genetic changes that um, patients are born with, and therefore, they're also not changes that are being passed on to any children or family um, family members would share. For whatever reason, it happens as the cell becomes a leukemia, but some of those changes can really help to predict whether it's faster growing or slower growing or what kinds of treatments are best for patients. And mm-hmm. um, one of those tests to look at genetics is called FISH, F-I-S-H, there are other mutations that are looked at, but again, this is in in just the cancer cells. They aren't in the other parts of the body or things people have to worry of passing on. Right. Um, the patient-specific factors that are really important in making treatment decisions are things like age. Even um, the fittest 75-year-old patient, which mm-hmm. is really important to be fit, um, but the body just uh, has certain changes in the the way different treatments are processed, and we know from clinical trials that um, that that should be factored in amongst the options. Fortunately, that was more the case with chemotherapy than the newer the newer targeted treatments that seem to work independent of age. And then again, depending on the specific treatment, we consider other things like do patients have chronic kidney disease or chronic heart disease, um, because that might help us counsel patients amongst their options of what might be a better choice for them. So, Dr. Brander, that's a a great uh, context and background and great distinction between the genetic and the genomic and the uh, the mutation. So, I appreciate you clarifying that. Um, We're getting right down to our break here. We've got a quick minute minute or so. But um, so, based on the results of the diagnostic testing, doctors may recommend that patients, quote, unquote, watch and wait, no treatment. That can be a fairly common approach, right? And so what would lead a doctor to recommend um, watch and wait? Give me a quick answer on that, and then we'll pick that up a little bit uh, more after the break. So watchful waiting or dynamic monitoring, in simplest term, is none of the indications that you have to be concerned about starting on treatment have to be acted on at that time. And I just want patients to know that not doing something is doing something. You're you're making the choice that in that point, you may never need therapy or it's not the right time for it, and you are doing something by not doing something. Terrific. Great. And we'll pick, uh, we'll pick watch and wait up after the break. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking about chronic lymphocytic leukemia with Dr. Danielle Brander. We're really getting a deep dive into CLL 
learning about it, how it's diagnosed, how it's treated, and and uh, some of the hope and, and, and new treatments for the future. Um, we've got a lot more to discuss with uh, with Dr. Brander. We're going to pick up after the break and talk a little bit more about that watch and wait approach and really what that means for patients both physically and psychologically. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Don't go away. We'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're having a really in-depth conversation with Dr. Danielle Brander about chronic lymphocytic leukemia or CLL in this installment of our Looking at Leukemia's series. Dr. Brander is a cellular therapy and hematologic malignancies specialist. Um, Dr. Brander, we uh, uh, before the break talked a little bit about, you know, where patients are going to go through a host of testing, really learn about um, kind of the, the, you know, where they are with their disease. And the doctor very well may recommend something that's called watch and wait, that that's a common approach. Just tell us again what, what, what that means and why would a doctor recommend that? Sure. So what has been termed watch and wait, which um, does not necessarily sound good, but is with good reason. Um, sometimes I use the term dynamic monitoring because we do really try to monitor, not necessarily for some patients, be waiting for something to happen. 
understandably for many patients can be very confusing. They probably had gone to the doctor, maybe had BLL initially suggested by blood work and then diagnosed. And anytime we think of being diagnosed with a cancer, the understandable natural response is to want to to treat. But for CLL and other indolent or slow-growing leukemia or lymphomas, um, these can be very slow-changing and they're very treatable, but they're not necessarily curable. And with knowing that treatment can help um, but not necessarily get rid of it, the cancer completely, and also with knowing that some patients, about almost up over a third of patients, would never need treatment, not starting treatment right away or until it's needed is really important. And so when the cancer team or the oncologist physician is recommending that, it means in careful review, talking to the patients about their symptoms, looking at their blood work and their blood counts, and doing a physical exam, they're making the recommendation that they don't see anything in those areas that meets criteria for when it's necessary to start treatment. And again, some of that is because some of those patients might never need treatment, um, and some of it is because if it's a slow-changing process that's treatable but not curable, even the best treatments have side effects, and you don't want to embark down that until it's um, necessary. The one last thing I'll say is these recommendations have come from um, clinical trials or studies over many decades that have looked to see if starting treatment right at the time of diagnosis for CLL is better for patients versus waiting till certain criteria are met. And in every one of those clinical trials, there's been no benefit except exposure to treatment to starting mm-hmm. treatment right at the time of diagnosis mm-hmm. versus until indications are, are met. Um, for some patients, mm-hmm. The indications might be met near diagnosis, but if they're not, then again, as I said before, not doing something really is a a decision to do something of what can be difficult, which is mm-hmm. not start on something that's not that's not needed or may never right. be needed. Right, but you can imagine patients saying, "Oh, geez, I have cancer." They're telling me they're not going to treat it. Um, so, I, I I just want to tell you about a survey that we did at Cancer Support Community mm-hmm. of patients with um, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Uh, we found that many of the respondents were very, in fact, uncomfortable with the term "watch and wait." Um, and we asked them to suggest some alternatives. I like your alternative. You mentioned dynamic. Mm-hmm. Monitoring. We had some other serious uh, suggestions like active surveillance, right? Pretty synonymous mm-hmm. with dynamic monitoring, um, observational treatment phase. A few of the other um, suggestions were maybe a little more humorous. Um, for example, one, one patient said, uh, I would call it languishing in limbo. Um, and then we had one that was maybe a little more philosophical that was called watch and live um, being suggested. So, um, you know, certainly a range of responses um, on that. So how do you... Uh, you know, how do you help to address sort of the psychological or emotional concern about a watch and wait approach with a patient? Well, I I very much like those suggestions. Now I have even more ideas. <laughs> there you go. There you <laughs> go. Dynamic monitoring. Uh, yeah. But some some people, I think when I say that, laugh at me that I'm worried about words, but I don't think any of us like to hear the wait because... It, it sounds like we're just delaying the inevitable or some something's going to drop, and um, that's not 
um, at all the case, but it also needs to acknowledge that it just feels not intuitive to find a cancer and not treat it. But um, but these are really from looking at time and studies and make, trying to make the best decision for the patient. That being said, because it doesn't feel intuitive, it's not going to be easy. I mean, patients... Uh, are, as I mentioned, this might have been a couple weeks or a couple months process. They might have thought they were feeling okay, then a lab abnormality was found, then the next thing you know, they're walking into a cancer center, which is, you know, its own set of things and seeing other patients that might be in different places in their journey. Um, it, they might be thinking, how is this going to impact me, not just physically, but financially. Um, and so it's a really hard time. I try to do my best. What I want patients to know is I will review the same conversation each time. You don't need to come in and remember everything. None of us remember everything. And so I like them to um, start with their questions because that's probably what we're going to remember the most and try to give them the resources. I think been wonderful programs like what you're doing here and Mm -hmm. what others are trying to do to recognize we can't give all the resources and teaching though we'd love to during the space of an office visit. One, we can't remember all of it. And two, um, people just, you know, don't have the the time or the space. So um, part of what I hope to do is, is for patients to feel comfortable asking the question, the longer they, as, as one of your viewers said, um, um, watch and live, you know, things are going to take on different understanding for mm-hmm. them and they might have different levels of questions. So having resources for outside of the visit is important, making mm-hmm. patients feel comfortable that they can ask the same questions because it's going to mean different things to them when they're first being right. diagnosed versus right. six months later. Right. Absolutely. So I like that. I like that watch and live too. That's a good one. And so it may not be, it may not necessarily feel to the patient like a treatment plan, but it certainly is a care plan. And, um, Mm -hmm. and I think for, for the way you explain it is very nice. And um, I think gives patients a sense that I am being cared for, even though there's not a, I'm not on a treatment right now. Um, We're, um, uh, we've got a lot to cover in our next uh, two or three minutes, Dr. Brander. So we're going to do a little, little lightning round because I know our folks are going to want to hear about um, uh, tr- treatment options and why a particular treatment might be recommended versus another and um, what the patient can expect. So let me start um, and we'll just try to get through these quickly. Let me start with um, immunotherapy. What is an immunotherapy and, and why might that be a treatment for a patient with CLL? Sure. So immuno, like immune system, is very broadly anything where we're trying to get uh, use our own immune system to help treat cancers. So a couple decades ago was an antibody treatment like rituximab, obinutuzumab, just throwing them out there. Those are often treatments through the IV that are antibodies to attack the cancer. In recent years, there's been exciting change where immune therapy is actually taking the immune system cells out of the body, manufacturing them to attack the cancer and putting them back in. That's something called CAR-T. That's the type of immune therapy. And then longstanding, we've thought of stem cell transplants. Those are also immune therapies. So it's, it's very broadly using the immune system in various ways to try to attack and kill the cancer cells, the blood cancer cells. 
is um, our stem cell, maybe you can mention what are stem cell transplants and are those a common treatment for patients with CLL? Stem cell transplant uh, in CLL is usually when the stem cells come from another person, either a, a sibling that's matched or a registry. And really what it is is trying to um, use someone else's cells after all kinds of things involved to get um, patients' body ready to handle that. Um, and it's a very risky process, but in some cases for patients that are out of other treatment options or we're concerned other options aren't going to work, when those stem cells are, uh, or bone marrow transplant is other common terms people might hear, um, those cells, because they're from someone else, they get into the body and they don't, they go after the cancer cells. We call that graft or transplant versus the leukemia. Um, it's a very um, long-standing process, but patients have to be fit. There's a lot of risk. So in terms of your question of is it a common um, treatment, it's certainly a well-established for many decades. People have been trying to work to optimize it. Um, but often, unfortunately, because patients are older when they're diagnosed or might have other health conditions, it's certainly uh, not an option for treatment for all patients. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Brinder, uh, chemo immunotherapy, is it what it sounds like, a combination of chemo and immunotherapy? Right. So you're correct. Usually in that sense, chemo is... Um, Traditional chemo are um, medications usually through the IV and infusion into the veins um, to kill cancer cells, but also other faster dividing cells. And it's not necessarily specific for one target. So there are different chemotherapies, lots of types that we use for CLL versus different ones than, say, breast or colon cancer. When we say chemoimmunotherapy, it's usually when chemo is combined with that type of immune Mm -hmm. therapy I mentioned, which are antibodies. So it's usually Mm -hmm. specifically the antibodies, not the other types of immune therapy. So antibodies plus chemo. Excellent. Got it. Uh, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking today about CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia with Dr. Danielle Brander. She's a cellular therapy and hematologic malignancy specialist at Duke. Um, We have a lot more to cover with with Dr. Brander. We're going to dive in a little bit deeper, talk a little bit more uh, about some of the treatment options that are uh, available and some of the other resources uh, that are available to care for for, uh, patients with CLL. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, 
the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices. I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you a breakaway from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you by AbbVie and is part of our special series looking at leukemias. Our focus today has been chronic lymphocytic leukemia. We've been truly lucky uh, to have as our guest and guide, Dr. Danielle Brander. Dr. Brander has been recognized for her research and teaching with the Silver Award for Most Outstanding Research and the Elizabethtown College Apgar Distinguished Alumni Award and the William Kane Hematology Oncology Junior Faculty Teaching Award. Very um, impressive. You really are uh, are an expert, Dr. Brandon. You have a wonderful way of uh, talking um, about CLL to our listeners in a way that all of us um, who are not scientists and researchers uh, can understand. Um, I know you have an active research program there at Duke. You are a researcher. Um, can you tell us about your research focus and what you're currently working on? What should be what What should we be excited about? Yes. Well, thank you very much. It really is um, an honor, and I think. The biggest thing in terms of research uh, that I'm a part of is now we certainly recognize we can't do research in an island. So I have an amazing team of colleagues. A lot of our clinical trials that we do to offer new and exciting treatment options for patients are trials that are being done at several different centers across the country, and that's very important to me especially for patients that might have had treatment or one or two treatments before and either didn't tolerate it or the treatment stopped working, um, and being able to have clinical trials for those patients to have a different approach is, uh, has been really important to me. So we have everything from um, novel pills um, that maybe work um, in the setting of certain treatments not working We have, as I mentioned, the uh, CAR-T cell clinical trials that are being done at different institutions to look for treatment for um, CLL. So a lot of what my passion and goal is is for the patients I help care for in clinic, being able to offer those different treatments. Um, Beyond that, though, and being at 
uh, Duke and the colleagues that I have here are the work with the immunologists and the scientists. So the work we do in the labs, we've had very generous patients that have, um, you know, donated blood and other samples that has been used to try to understand why do some treatments work better for some patients versus uh, other patients or why do some patients have certain side effects. And that's really come from the generous donations of, of patients um, as part of our, our research with my um, mentor, Dr. Weinberg, here and others within our division. And then lastly, in being part of the Cancer Survivorship um, Program with um, Dr. Kevin Effinger here, Dr. Andrea Sittlinger, which is another one of our oncologists, hematologists here, looking at what I mentioned at the start of the program, which is how do we do better for our patients in their chronic cancer care? How do we make sure they have a good bridge to their primary care physician? How do we make sure when they're on treatments that might raise their blood pressure over the period of years that their primary care who are experts in this can feel comfortable making adjustments? How do we make sure patients aren't so focused on their CLL that um, they fall off from their mammogram screenings or their colonoscopy screenings? Mm-hmm. And so um, that group of patients has been um, really, um, really exciting area of research. So yeah. we're yeah. trying to tackle all that I certainly couldn't mm-hmm. do without everyone's help. Yes. Well, kudos to the team there. So and thank you for uh, for calling out uh, some of your colleagues there. We appreciate all the work that's, that's happening. I want to take a, just a quick minute or two, Dr. Brander, to talk about clinical sure. trials. Um, if you could just briefly tell our listeners what are clinical trials. And, you know, you're talking about all these wonderful new treatments that are coming forward. A patient mm-hmm. might say, well, um, I, don't think, I don't think I need to be in a trial. You know, we've got these new treatments coming forward. Yeah. What is the importance of clinical trials in the present and future of, of the treatment of CLL? So the, my opening statement, which is we feel passionate about always doing better for patients, is just because we, we have these options. We can still do better in making things work better for longer and less side effects. And know that in cancer, no one's going to set someone up for a trial where they're getting a placebo or not getting treatment at all. I think historically there's a lot of misunderstanding. Um, and some of it is patients just asking, what are my options? And and um, I think there can be a lot, you know, patients that benefited from these early treatments did so first on clinical trials and uh, we can always do better. And so I think patients deserve, there's unfortunately a low percent of patients that are even offered trials. So just asking um, and they can talk through what the advantages might be for them individually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, one of the issues, Dr. Brander, is that um, many of the trials that are available are available at the larger academic and research centers, um, but more than 80% of cancer patients are treated in a community setting. Do you think it's important for a patient to get a second opinion at an academic center where there might be a wider range of, of, of trials available? That's a great point. I I think asking for a second opinion or asking their oncologist just what are the trial options. In some cases, it might be a very specific trial where patients have to come for a visit, but um, sometimes just asking the question may allow access to we're trying to be in a more electronic world where people know what trials are happening and so patients don't feel like they have to go somewhere if maybe there isn't an option um, Mm -hmm. for a trial. But I think and hope many of us recognizing this are trying um, to to really ask for trials that are feasible to be done 
not just at isolated large trials, but closer. Because mm-hmm. as you point out, it's not just the option, it's all the visits and getting the mm-hmm. treatments. Um, so really what we all need to do is offer these um, to be feasible at more places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just a quick question, Dr. Brander, do you, um, do you think we're doing a good job on educating patients about biomarker and genomic testing? And do you uh, feel like, again, with the bulk of patients being treated in community oncology, um, do you feel like these tests are available to folks in the community setting? Are they being offered uh, to people and coming into routine care? And are they being paid for by the insurance companies? Well, your last part, I think, is the important part. I have many, you know, working with a lot of great um, oncologists that that ask. I think the the biggest thing is um, sometimes it's very slow for insurance or others to catch up with what we might be saying helps inform Mm decision-making. It's also sometimes hard to explain that doing the testing now may not influence right away what you're offering. offering for treatment, but it may Mm -hmm. be really important when I tell my patients we should always be thinking about plan A and plan B. And so some of this test, you might choose one option, but you want to know for for plan B how likely for option A to continue to work. And these are all really um, exciting work that's being done, but if they're not being paid for, we certainly don't want patients to have the burden of the send-out testing. I think the access for testing has been great. There's a lot of independent companies that allow samples to be sent out. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do we be clear about what the core things are? And I think if yes. we, as a group, agree on that, it'll hopefully lead to it'll more help. options for patients. Great. Great. Yeah, and I think the more the testing comes into care, the more um, we'll see an improvement in uh, reimbursement. It's certainly a challenge we hear from our um, from our patients as well. Well, I, unfortunately, we're uh, we're at the end of our show. There's so much more we could discuss, uh, Dr. Brander. This has been a wonderful um, overview of CLL. Um, we are so grateful for you spending some time with us today to help kind of unwind some of the mystery here a little bit and help us understand this disease, how it's diagnosed, how it's being treated, and what some of the treatment options are. We want to remind our listeners that we have a whole range of free services available to you at the Cancer Support Community. So visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org or call us at 888-793-9355. I'm Kim Thibaldeau. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support